years ago, I sat in a cafeteria at the University of Memphis as a campus minister with um, a young man who was troubled. He had perhaps, probably for the first time, been confronting behavior in himself that was, you know, really inconsistent with what he said he believed as a Christian. And um, I, on the other hand, of course, was fresh out of seminary, was armed to the teeth with very quality theology to help the poor soul. And so I launched into, you know, a little sermonette. Many of us know just how painful that can be to be on the receiving end of that. Talked about justification, sanctification, and adoption, and you know, I really thought that I'd weaved an almost perfect, you know, coherent treatise for him. And I'll never forget what he said at the very end of the little speech. He stopped and goes, Les, I know every bit of that. I've been going to church as long as you've been going to church. My problem is not the information. I just don't know how to get that in me. I think what I struggle with is what people mean when they say faith, that they believe this stuff. I know I'm supposed to believe in Jesus, but I get hung up on what that even means. The guy actually came to understand that faith is, is a really big deal. But I wonder how many of you have ever felt that way. I wonder if you've ever looked at sort of Christianity and wondered whether it's all to you just kind of theoretical, lives in the realm of the ideas. I mean, many of you don't want that to be the case. And so you wonder with this guy of how do these things come home to you? Because faith is a big deal in the Bible. I often say that you can hardly throw a rock into the New Testament without finding some passage telling you to believe something. Have faith in somebody. Ephesians 2 says that for by grace you have been saved through faith. So Paul thinks it's important as well. But here I stand after 25 years of ordained ministering. And my contention is simply this, that neither the religious or the irreligious really have what Jesus' view of faith is that we see from these passages. You know, on the one hand, you have your kind of secular, irreligious person who kind of views faith as a, um, you know, sort of positive mental state that's so, you know, clear-minded that results just materialize before their eyes. I don't have any idea who's going to win the NCAA tournament in the days ahead. My bracket shot, like most of all of yours. But I know for a fact that at the very end of the tournament, the reporter is going to stick the microphone inside the MVP's face or the the coach or whatever and say, Coach, how did you do it? And he's going to say, well, you know, from the very beginning, we never stopped believing. We always had faith that we would. So then you turn your attention to the religious person, right? And you still get the same kind of maybe Jesus-baptized power of positive thinking that you get, but with one little point thrown in. And that is that to them, faith is this sort of um, uh, famously hard-to-define intellectual leap into the dark, right? Things that naturally don't make sense to you require a a leap, a, a decision even, a moment of clarity that's followed by a vow, uh, maybe a promise to commit, But afterwards, when you question her about her faith, she'll say, well, I know that I really can't prove there's a God. I really don't know that the Bible is really true, but that's where you have to have faith. And so it's almost as if you could hear them say, the more absurd people say Christianity is, the better, because the greater requirements for me to believe and have faith. Look, we've been compiling for the last uh, months here at this church an ever-growing list of reasons of why Jesus would have been compelling to this original audience. 
And my premise this morning is that neither of those two ways, the religious or the irreligious way of looking at faith, encompasses what Jesus is describing for us in these pages. Faith, I think, is very unnecessarily outside of the reach of most people. And for many, the whole project of Christianity collapses on their inability to make themselves believe something, even if they say they want to. Hmm. You know, last fall, I quoted uh, from a memoir by a guy named Rick Bragg called All Over But the Shoutin', which is about his relationship with his uh, very deeply religious country Pentecostal mother. And the whole book is devoted to how much he adored this woman. But her faith, he said, he just, he just couldn't embrace. Why? He would say, because it just never happened to me. You see, faith in that conception is a little bit like a cold that you catch. It's a ditch that you kind of fall into. And I think for a lot of people, people have abandoned faith because it's just not me anymore. I've just kind of evolved into something that's not needful. Faith is for the faithful, not me. So what do these verses show us about faith? I do recognize that the word faith doesn't appear in these verses, but commentators agree that when the Apostle Paul starts to unpack the nature of faith in the Gospels, his understanding was shaped by lessons like these from Jesus. So three things I want to run past you this morning. Faith involves, first of all, repenting. Faith involves depending. And then finally, faith involves gazing. (laughs) Repenting, depending, and gazing. Let's dive into it. First of all, Faith involves repenting. Verse 9 says that Jesus addressed these stories to those who, quote, trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Interesting. In other words, it's not something that these people had done in the past that condemned them, although I'm sure there was plenty of that, but rather it was the posture that they had assumed in their life in relation to others that condemned them. By the way, you realize this is true for everyone. Like the activity of of trusting in something is really universal in the Bible's calculus. Because human beings, according to the Bible, are sort of come built in with this innate sort of internal dynamic that causes you literally from birth to lock hold of things and say, this is what is going to make life work for me. So in that sense, faith is something that everyone has whether they would call themselves faithful people or not. The question is not so much whether you have it, as much as what your faith is at the moment actively drawing off of to make life work for you. We all have faith, no matter where you are. The question is, what is it in? And so what that means is, in order to really grasp what Jesus is saying about faith here, you've got to adjust how you think about faith. I think that we need to start thinking about faith more, less as an act or sort of a moment in time, And more of it is a posture, a way of life. Faith doesn't just happen once. It's an ongoing stance before God, before yourself, before others, or for your stuff. So if we're to have the posture of life that sort of reflects with Jesus' definition of faith, what does that look like? Well, the answer is there in verses 9 through 14, which is a pretty stark contrast between those two individuals, right? You know, just like the parable of the two lost sons that we studied a couple of weeks ago, Jesus is contrasting religious people with irreligious people. And he's showing the fact that the irreligious in many ways have a little bit of a leg up on the religious people because they're the ones who tend to get 
his message that he's coming to bring, you know, of, rather than the people who think that they're doing just fine without him. Notice the Pharisee's prayer there in verse 11. <laughs> you know, his whole prayer is literally about himself. It's directed to God, but the prayer is really about him. Translators like to point out the fact that the phrase standing by himself praying could actually be translated very easily praying to himself. <laughs> in other words, the Pharisee's religious state is achieved by comparison. As long as he's doing okay in the eyes of those who are around him, then he feels like he and God are on the same page. They're in good standing. Which, if you think about it, is a very searching thought, isn't it? I mean, how much of my spiritual life do I allow to be driven by the impression that I feel I am or am not making on those around me? How often are we motivated to go to God for something that was not prompted by the way in which someone else around you thought of you? What will people think? It's very easy to replace your spiritual life with your social life, isn't it? But the tax collector, I think, shows us that the real first step of faith is to live in a posture of repentance. Remember, a tax collector was about as hated an individual as you could have been in that ancient Near Eastern society. He, was, he had betrayed his people. He was working for a foreign invading government. He was usually a cheat. You know, he, his livelihood flourished only to the degree that his dishonesty flourished. He was hated. But while he's in the back of the church, he's beating his chest. Now, what's that all about? Well, beating one's chest was actually a common form of public demonstration of repentance that the ancients called contrition, to be contrite. You remember King David in Psalm 51 when he says that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. What does that mean? What is contrite? A number of years ago, I heard a preacher say that, that the, ex, the explanation for that word comes from an ancient form of execution, where the victim would be literally tied down to the ground, arms and legs, both. And a large, huge rock was very gently placed on the victim's chest, where, of course, they could exhale just fine. But when they tried to draw breath, the weight was too great, and they would die from suffocation from the great weight. But this is what people were recalling when they would beat upon their chest. They were saying to themselves, I'm crushed under the weight of my sin, so much that it feels like my very breath is gone. Now look, before we move on to the next point, I think it's worth some, some consideration on this. And that is this question, has your sin ever crushed you? Because there's a difference between that and my sin being an annoyance to me. What's the difference? Well, you know, commentators like to point out that the article that precedes the tax collector's description of himself as sinner is not the indefinite article A. It's actually the definite article the. See what he's saying? He's saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. What's happened to him? Here's what's happened. It's become personal. You see, when the knowledge of my sin and my failure is an annoyance, I still kind of have a little bit of resentment at the fact that God's levied his rules towards me like he has. But when all of a sudden it's become a weight, a burden that it's crushing me, it's because I realize that what I've done is I've wounded the heart of a loving father. 
That's different. That's different. And so the first step in living in a living faith is nurturing a posture of repentance, number one. Number two, faith not only involves repenting, though, it involves depending. Now, we're not sure why, but the disciples in verse 15 rebuke the children as they come to Jesus. The most likely explanation is because children were, along with women and um, uh, crippled people, um, were second-class citizens in that culture. Um, you, were little worried. you were a social bother until you were either bar or bat mitzvahed in that particular culture. But Jesus wants them around. Why? Well, he tells us. He says, because entrance into the kingdom of God requires childlikeness. Now look, at this point, it really helps to be a parent. So bear with me, parents. Help me bear witness to this fact. Because you're first thinking to yourself, you know what, there's actually quite a lot of things uh, about a child that you just kind of intuitively know would not be what Jesus is talking about as a required interest kingdom. My guess is immaturity and you know, t- tantrum throwing are probably not on the list of things to be espoused by Christian disciples. But what is the essential attribute he's talking about? Well, I think most prominently we can see that what Jesus is talking about is the dependence of a child. Now look, mommies, go back in time for just a moment. When that little bundle of joy first arrived, and at first it's just wonderful, isn't it? There's, there's like, there's baby showers, and there's, there's your mother or your mother-in-law who came and stuck around with you to kind of walk you through the early stages of it. But then, you know, what week is it? Three, four, five weeks before you're sitting there, and you're on your couch or somewhere, or maybe you're in a rocking chair, and you look down at that child and you think to yourself, you know, no one's going to take care of this thing. Like, I can't send it back. (laughs) It's me or nobody. Why? Because the thing can't feed itself. It can't clean itself. It can't even communicate effectively whether or not it needs something. It is utterly helpless. And Jesus is saying that the next aspect of this posture of faith is one of that kind of dependence. No, 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 no. Bring these children around me because then you're going to see what it is I'm talking about. Like, I think there's some real beauty to be sort of grasped at this point, because I've noticed how interesting it is that when a child senses intuitively that they are that dependent, one of the weird things is, is they tend to keep short accounts. I did ask for permission from Luke to tell this story, but I was reminded of a story from his youth. When Luke got sent to his room for the offense of spitting upon his sisters, okay, Never mind why it happened, but it was an offense that you know, he had been repeatedly warned against, so he had to go back into his room at a time out. And of course, there was great wailing and gnashing of teeth that I could hear on the other side of the door. But after three, four minutes or so, you kind of walk in to have the you know, post-punishment sort of discussion, right? And I'll never forget, you know, he's sort of in that sort of deep, powerful you know, lament that he's in the midst of right there. Daddy, you know. But then I look and I was like, son, you know, we can't do this. We promise not to do that. So just tell me we're not going to do that anymore. Yeah, daddy, yeah, daddy, that's right. <sighs> do you want to play Power Rangers? <laughs> I was like, well, <clears throat> sure, son. I get it. Great. But how is that possible? It happened over and over again when they were small. Because I think that sort of intuitively, a child who has lived in a sense of that dependency, they intuitively know that the enjoyment of the father is so much better than dwelling on the fear that they might not love me. So they drop it. What a vivid glimpse into the nature of biblical faith. 
Like you know that you've started to believe when you express dependence. This is the problem. Faith as an achievement, which is what we think about. Well, you know, I'm just trying to have faith. My first thought is like, that feels upside down. Because faith is actually the acknowledgement of not being able to achieve. It's a dependence. And the funny thing is, is when that's grasped, my utter dependence, it means that I keep short accounts with my father. I reduce the amount of time that it takes me to run to him for repentance. That's growth. Why? Because enjoying him is so much better than festering in the fear that somehow I have outstriped his willingness to love me. Drop it. Go to him. Or, in a word, believe. So faith involves repenting. Faith involves depending. Thirdly and finally, faith involves gazing. Gazing. Finally, Jesus presents us with a man who has tangibly put his faith in his resources or his money. I hope you're hearing this theme. Luke is really fixated on this throughout his book. But, you know, at first he tries to, uh, he tries to flatter you know, Jesus, which is kind of the way rich people talk to each other, you know, tries to find, oh, we're a good teacher. Jesus will have nothing of it. But finally, he gets to the point of what he wants in verse 18. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, don't get stumbled up on that question, because I don't think the rich man is asking so much about uh, life after death. He's talking about a fulfilled life, a renewed life. He's talking about the secret of life. In other words, what this man is saying is, I feel incomplete. There's a problem, though. I can't seem to find any answer to what I'm going through. That's what Jesus decides he's going to help him. By helping him consider how well, (laughs) or how poorly, he kept the Ten Commandments. So he looks at him and says, you know the commandments, just keep them. The the enhanced life that you're hoping to experience, just do those. you got to love his answer. (laughs) All these I have kept since my youth. Wow. (laughs) You got to love that answer. That's a bold answer. You wish you could have seen the faces of the people sort of standing around thinking to themselves, (laughs) okay, nice answer there. What is Jesus going to say to that? It's really interesting what Jesus did. In the the Mark telling of this story, in the Gospel of Mark, get the same story? Um, and And we believe Mark got his information from Peter. So Peter was there to watch this go down. Peter actually records Jesus as saying, and Jesus looked at him and he loved him. In other words, what Jesus is about to say to the rich young ruler was born out of someone who had deep affection for this man's soul. So it's as if Jesus says, you know what? How about a pop quiz? So you've kept all the commandments since your youth. All right, tell me this. Do this. Go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. You want to know why? Because the very first commandment Is about worshiping me and me alone. And you're worshiping your money. You're looking to it to make your life count. And that's the reason why you're so empty. That's why you're coming and asking me about eternal life. Because you don't have it through your money. So just go sell it. Learn to give it away. Learn to give it away. You'll see how much it exercises its tyranny over you. And of course the man leaves sad. Why? because he had failed to step into what was certainly true of him, and that is that he was a child, a dependent child, utterly dependent on God's grace. But instead, you know, he rested in the security of his retirement portfolio. Look, what was it that was really wrong with the rich young ruler? Well, to answer that question, 
I simply want to throw out three ideas that I think, points of application, if you will, from this rich young ruler's life. First is this. Faith is such in the Bible's view that to take one's gaze off of one thing and to place it on another inevitably creates actions that suggest you've done so. Invariably. This is the reason why later on in the New Testament, James will insist that faith that is without works is actually dead faith. In other words, no faith at all. Why? Because the activity of faith is so central. It's so vital to your daily functioning that it's actually not too much to say that you will always do what you believe. Don't pit your believing over and against your obeying. Because if your doing is going one direction, then that is whereby beliefs are as well. Jesus puts it this way. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. And again, the heart, at least in the Bible's version of you, is the central mechanism for believing. It all comes from there. Everything, whether it be your thoughts, whether it be your emotions, whether it be your choices in life, it comes from this thing called your heart. And the condition of your heart, Jesus says, is determined by your treasure. And your treasure is not that hard to discover either. Your treasure is followed by your time. Your treasure is identified by your checkbook. Your treasure is identified by your daydreams, where your mind drifts to when you don't have anything else to think about. There is no separation between your believing and your behaving. And man, this is so crucial to deal with, especially when you're encountering disobedience in your own life. Why did I do that? Why in the world was I capable of that? Because most of us, we tend to sort of immediately default to willpower. Let's get these choices better. Let's make better choices. Or we go to our emotions. Man, if I just felt this, let me go to another worship service that just blows me up and blows me away. Or we go to our intellect. That's better for Presbyterians. I'm going to figure this out. Surely R.C. Sproul said something about this. But instead, what Jesus is saying is, if you take any of those paths and it's abstracted from a consideration of your heart, those things will actually curse you. They'll make it worse. Because the question then becomes, what do you treasure? What do you value? Jesus is trying to free this man from the tyranny of his possessions. And it's a tyranny that he can't see, but it certainly has made his life unsettled. Hadn't found his eternal life. And so Jesus looks and goes, man, it is hard for a rich man to get this. He needs to be exposed. Why? Well, look, I know we talked about this a few weeks ago, but because of how money works. Money just has this way of masking dependence to you. It makes you feel invulnerable. makes you feel secure. I think about this all the time. And, and forgive me, I, I have a lot of compassion for people who just showed up at church today and the preacher's about to start talking about money. Ha! See, I knew it. I apologize. I get it. But the fact is this, there, I just, it's hard to really imagine a more jaw-dropping statement of faith that you would pull out a check and write a check to a church. I, I, I'm astounded at it, quite frankly. To build a church building. <laughs> to sort of fund sort of the, the, the operation of the staff and the ministries of the church. To log into an app to get direct deposit on your, on your account to give to the church. Just for sake of illustration, right? 
Who would do that? <clears throat> but Jesus is saying that is a working of faith to sort of give that up, to give it away. So this is my whole point, though. Faith and your actions are too intimately tied. Secondly, though, you'll notice how faith and your imagination are equally as intimately tied. Look, your imagination is that thing that comes over you when you get up in the morning. You begin to envision a day ahead. What are my opportunities? What are my goals? What am I trying to accomplish? What are my impediments? What are the things that I dread? But that day is lived out with that vision in mind, is it not? Your actions are in keeping with this image that you had of what your day was going to be like. Well, C.S. Lewis says that your faith in God and your imagination are almost inextricably linked. Which is why Jesus is constantly appealing to his followers to see themselves in different ways. You know, the rich young ruler has this internal vision of himself that's making him unsettled. And so Jesus is saying, I I have an alternative inner vision for you. A conceptual recommendation of a dependent child. Try, Try that on for size. Wrap yourself in that. And so if you're wondering what faith feels like, it feels a lot like your imagination. To try to alter your inner vision of this thing you call yourself. Watch the Apostle Paul throughout the rest of the New Testament talk about you to the saints who are in Ephesus. You know, uh, you were uh, buried and raised again or reckon yourselves dead unto sin, but alive to God. What's he doing? He's trying to appeal to the imagination. I wish we had more time for that, but probably sounds a little bit like the old Jesus baptized power of positive thinking, doesn't it? Well, it's not because of the third thing that I would mention. And that's simply this. Faith is not about how much you have, but it's about where it's directed. Faith is not a matter of quantity. How much do I have? Even necessarily of the quality of your faith. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Rather, faith is about your focus. It's about what you're looking at. You don't appeal to your imagination by working harder on your inner world and straightening out the, the function of your thinking. No, your imagination is transformed by whatever it is that you're fixated upon. I think the disciples' question in verse 26 is fascinating. They're baffled by Jesus' statement about rich people because the rich people were the ones who had it all together. Their reasoning is like, if they don't get in, we don't have a prayer. But Jesus, what does he do? He decides to channel their panic to the sovereignty of God. Wow. With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Unfortunately, that little phrase has come to be, you know, like a little cross-stitch version of uh, name it and claim it Christianity. (laughs) What Jesus is saying is, it's a phrase that says God does something for you that you just could never do for yourself. So Jesus is saying that at the center of your thinking has to be the great thought of God. The all-knowing the all-powerful, the all-comprehending God who not only has the power to save every one of us, but that it is His delight to do as much. You plant that concept in the middle of your imagination, and you know what happens? You start to believe. (laughs) The power of faith this morning operates in our imagination to transform our lives. Imagine that you walk up to two stonemasons in a quarry working on their stone. You go to the first one, you say, what are you doing? 
And he says, I'm precisely measuring the dimensions of this stone to get its corners perfectly aligned with the other stones around it. You go to the second stone mason, you say, what are you doing? He says, why? I'm building a cathedral. Both answers are technically correct, aren't they? But the vision of the latter is so much bigger. (laughs) It's so much more grand. It's so much more breathtaking. And you can't tell me that it didn't transform every little chip of that stone. Oh, do you see where Jesus is going? (laughs) He's like, look, in the midst of your struggle with all these things that call for your allegiance in your life, cast your eyes upon the sovereign God that will move you to an utterly dependent person who he alone could accomplish your salvation. And when that vision makes the imagination, it is powerfully and deeply compelling. Or in a word, it makes you believe. So who believes this morning? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we pray as this verse has just suggested that you would grant us what it is that you command of us. You've called us to believe. You've called us to be people of faith. But a quick glance at our hearts means that we need you to give us even that. So Father, would you even by your Holy Spirit set such a vision of your sovereign grace before our imagination that we would walk out of here transformed. That we would begin to see the world in a different way because we saw ourselves in a different way. Because we saw you in a different way. Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name.